0: Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. We're going to be in the book of James again this morning as we continue our study in the book of James. We've been here uh, now where we've made our way to uh, through chapter 3. We're actually at the end of chapter 3 and hopefully next week we'll be, begin chapter 4. Uh, for you those of you who have been here for the whole time, you're probably going, "Wow, that took a long time. can only imagine how long it's going to take you to preach uh, a longer book. Uh, we go slow, which is a good thing in, in many ways, because we want to squeeze as much out, out of um, the scriptures as we can. Well, I've titled my sermon this morning, "Which way? Which way? And in this text, what we're going to learn is, is that the, the two wildly divergent outcomes of following worldly versus godly wisdom, the two wildly divergent outcomes of following worldly versus godly wisdom. Uh, we're going to find out that following worldly wisdom, following, following worldly wisdom, uh, always creates anarchy, always. Following godly wisdom then always cultivates accord, always culti- cultivates accord. Let me read the scriptures, uh, starting in verse thirteen. We're going to read this whole in- this entire section uh, in order to get uh, context from verses thirteen through eighteen. So James chapter three verse thirteen. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Bible, you can follow along, along in whatever version it is that you uh, prefer. Starting in verse 13, "...who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good, behave, good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth." This wisdom is not that which comes down from above but is earthly natural de- demonic for where jealousy jealousy and selfish ambition exist there is disorder and every evil thing but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle reasonable full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you would bless this time in your word, that you would bless the preaching. I pray that we would be attentive to your word. I pray that I would be able to communicate it in a way, in a fashion that's clear, uh, that's uh, fresh and interesting, yet, Lord, that... that that gives your truth, that, that helps people see the truth of the Word of God. Father, I pray that my study time was fruitful, that I would be able to uh, show uh, the, the deep truths of your Word this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, uh, we started our study on the topic of wisdom here in James chapter 3. And we know from our earlier study that James places a, a high premium on receiving wisdom from God, which enables us not only to handle the, the str- struggles of life, but to thrive amid them, amidst them, in the midst of them. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James exhorted his readers to consider it all joy when they encounter various trials. And in verse 5, he goes on to exhort them to seek God for wisdom from above. Later in verse 17 of chapter 1, he he assured them that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So according to James, then, God sends trials and difficulties into our lives to give us the endurance that we need and to bring us to maturity given us or imparting to us wholeness in our Christian walk. James also teaches that God gives the wisdom that we need to persevere through those trials. In other words, both suffering and wisdom are good and perfect gifts that come down from above and are exactly what we need. Did you get that? Both suffering and wisdom are good and perfect gifts coming down from above and are exactly what we need. And if we persevere under trial, God has promised the crown of life to those who love Him. That's James chapter 1, verse 12. Left to our own devices, though, humans are very poor at knowing what's best. Especially what's best for us. We tend to want comfort. We tend to want things to go our way. But that's not God's way. In His infinite wisdom, God knows exactly what we need. And He gives this to us in full measure. Some of you may have seen, it was posted on our Facebook site, I believe, an article written by Ben Stewart in which he uses a video concerning wolves being introduced in Yellowstone Park as an analogy for trials and suffering in the Christian life. Stewart says of this video, It seems that, this is is him speaking, It seems that deer overpopulation had left massive portions of the park barren. Constant grazing had turned valleys into wastelands. The, the lack of vegetation had caused soil erosion, which destabilized the banks of the river, slowing the flow of water. The lack of sufficient water and vegetation, in turn, forced the, the wildlife to move on. In short, because of what was happening, because of the overgrazing of the deer, life was fading from the park. Then a pack of wolves moved in. The wolves predictably killed a few deer, thinning out the population. But that wasn't the most significant change. Again, I'm still reading, uh, I'm still reading Ben Stewart here in his blog article. The remaining deer were forced to move to higher terrain and to abandon the grassland of the, the valleys. These areas had, that had, grown, had been mown down for so long then began to re- regrow at an accelerated rate. Aspen trees quintupled in size in less than six years. This growth brought back birds to nest in the branches and beavers to eat the wood. The, return of the, the beavers meant the return of beaver dams, which created pools with, that allowed for the repopulation of fish, otters, ducks, muskrats, reptiles, and amphibians. The wolves also cleared out some of the coyotes, which caused rabbits and mice to return. This change led to a return of hawks, we- weasels, foxes, and badgers. Yet the most amazing impact occurred in the river itself. Because grasses were allowed to re- regrow, the soil collapsed less, allowing firmer riverbanks, which gave the river a, a flow a greater direction, which reinforced the animal habitats, in short. The entrance of a few wolves created a whole world of good in Yellowstone National Park, transforming wastelands into lush valleys teeming with life. So it turns out the best thing to do to promote life was to release a few wolves into the valley. Stewart says, uses this as an analogy for the Christian life. We flourish when the going gets tough. We want comfort and an easygoing lifestyle when what we need is hardship and trouble. Just the other day I told my wife that I fear the times when things seem to be going well. I, I don't want to go out of my way to change things to what I feel is better. Because as soon as I do, things could be much, much worse. I look at our church and I'm thankful for the difficulties that we've had because I know that through those difficulties that we are experiencing a growth and maturity through those, through those times. And I'm very grieved when I see people flee their troubles because I know that God has especially given trouble to his people to cause them to grow. So you might be saying to yourself, how can we come to the conclusion that trials and difficulties are good for us, especially when those difficulties are afoot. How can we come to that conclusion? This is wisdom from above, beloved. When we come to understand the difficulties of life is what God uses to grow us, we come to understand that that's on, that only comes from wisdom from above because wisdom from below, below says that we should flee our troubles. While wisdom from above says that I should persevere and trust the Lord who will care for me because He's sovereign in all these things. Wisdom from below says that I should complain as I experience troubles. Wisdom from above says that I should live a quiet life in all submission. We've learned from our text earlier, this, or a couple of weeks ago, that there are two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom from below and wisdom from above. And the question is, how do we know? The question we answered is, how do we know which wisdom we have? Two, two weeks ago, we saw four assessments to differentiate whether your wisdom is heavenly or earthly, godly or demonic. Godly wisdom, first, is revealed by our good works. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let, his, let him by his good behavior, or let him show that is, by his good behavior, his deeds. James is using a rhetorical question to introduce the, the subject of wisdom. He's already brought that subject as, up, as I said, in James 1. But here in chapter 3, he says something that might be unexpected to most. He says that if you have true wisdom, Wisdom from above, you will show it by your good behavior. When the going gets tough, true Christians never let circumstances dictate their behavior in a negative way. Did you get that? When the going gets tough, true Christians never let circumstances dictate their behavior in a negative way. Oh, we struggle. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, true Christians persevere through the the trouble and they don't let that trouble ultimately dictate their behavior. Instead, their behavior is exemplary, even in the difficulties. The world's wisdom says to fight back when we're oppressed. But godly wisdom says to behave in a way that pleases our Lord. Peter says much the same thing. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, "...but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame." So as you're being slandered, as you're going through these trials and difficulties of, of persecution, what Peter says is, is that, that, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame because they, they, there's nothing that they can say because of your behavior. He goes on to say in verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So if you, if you are in the midst of suffering because of persecution, what Peter is saying is, is that you continue to do what is right, even if it brings further suffering. Because it's better to suffer for the sake of right than wrong. And then Peter goes on in verse 18 to give us our supreme example of good behavior in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So the, the most just person ever to live on this earth, <clears throat> the Son of God Himself, suffered not because of wrongdoing, right? He was sinless. He suffered for doing what is right. James goes on to say that godly wisdom is adorned by meekness. He says let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The Christian who possesses true wisdom will show it by their good works and by their gentleness and humility. When challenged they respond in humility and gentleness. I think of the many Christian martyrs who have suffered and died for Christ. The most impressive thing is how they respond in gentleness knowing that God is in complete control. Polycarp was one of these martyrs. His final discourse, as he was facing a certain death, are the, some of the most amazing Christian words ever reco- ever recorded outside of the Word of God. He stated, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How then dare I blaspheme my King and my Savior? That's as he's facing death for his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a supreme example of... of humility and and gentleness as he's facing death. Beloved, This this is an example of true wisdom, knowing that service of Christ, even to the point of suffering and death, is greater than anything this life can give us. That's wisdom from above. James goes on to say that demonic wisdom, wisdom from below, is marked by bitter jealousy verse 14 James says that the the bitter jealousy that bitter jealousy is the mark of this demonic wisdom and and this can be this jealousy that is can be defined as intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success Paul had told the Romans and Romans or told the Romans and Ro, the Romans in Romans 12 15 rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep You see there's no room for jealousy in the Christian walk James is denouncing this resentful attitude that results in bitterness toward others. James or Paul, that is, denounced the same issue amongst the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He tells them, or he told them, that they couldn't receive solid food because they were fleshly. And he knew this because jealousy and strife, exist, jealousy and strife existed among them. James goes on to say, that demonic wisdom is stained by selfish ambition. That's, again, verse 14. James describes a person who is self-centered and seeking to please oneself no matter the cost to others. This type of person doesn't care what happens to others. If they, if they get what they want out of whatever situation they're in, they never think of anyone else's plight. They never consider others comfort. You might hear them say something like this: "Oh, it's good for you to suffer while they're completely unwilling to do so." This reminds me of James chapter 2 verses 15 and 16, where it says, "If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and any one of you says to them, "Go in peace and be warmed and be filled," you see, what was going on is these people were unwilling to sacrifice their standing in the community to help a brother or sister in need. And so they sent them on their way. Now this brings us to our text today. That was all review. This, this brings us to our text today uh, where we we have talked about the marks of wisdom, but we now need to discuss the result of each path. In our text today, as we've already said, we will, we will see two divergent outcomes or two paths, for, uh, but outcomes of following worldly and godly wisdom. Following... First point is following worldly wisdom always creates anarchy. James says in in chapter 3, verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly earthly, natural, and demonic. James is reiterating that when you possess bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you are arrogant and untruthful. He wants them to understand that instead of chasing after worldly wisdom, they need to ask They need to ask for wisdom from above, which is only God-given. And this type of wisdom only comes from a repeated request to God. We must continually seek after that godly wisdom and knowing that God delights in giving His children what they ask for. According to James, this type of wisdom doesn't come from an intellectual effort or study. It comes as God's gifts through the crucible of trials and suffering as we seek after the Lord. Proverbs two six says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. According to James then... Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition indicate that we only have wisdom from below, not the God-given wisdom from above. And according to to him, he says, the wisdom from below then is earthly instead of heavenly. Uh, People who have worldly wisdom have set their minds on the things below. Paul says much the same thing when he says, the enemies of Christ have set their minds on earthly things. James says that wisdom from below is natural, sensual. In other words, this wisdom of, of this world is a fleshly wisdom. And Paul told the Corinthians that, that he didn't need to speak to them a wisdom of this world or of this age which is passing away, but God's wisdom. That's in 1 Corinthians 2.6. James also says that wisdom from below is demonic. In other words, he's warning them that that worldly and fleshly wisdom is demonic in origin. It has been retained and propagated by the, evil, by the demons. And as such, worldly wisdom is a false representation of the real thing. Did you get that? Worldly wisdom is a false representation of the real thing. And false, false wisdom does not lead to good works and humility... It is characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is the direct antithesis of the wisdom that comes from above, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence and divine in origin. You get that? that they're, they're, these are opposite. The wisdom from below is of the world. It's of the flesh and it's of the devil. It's demonic. The wisdom of heaven is, is, is heavenly in nature and spiritual in essence and divine in origin. James goes on to say in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish amb- ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. James brings jealousy and se- selfish ambition back to the fore. He, he describes the results of those, the, those vices are, uh, being disorder and evil and vile, or vile practices. Douglas Moose says this The earthbound, unspiritual, and even demonic character of worldly wisdom is evident from the effects it has in the life of the church. Did you get that? The earthbound, unspiritual, and even demonic character of worldly wisdom is evident from the effects it has in the life of the church. And James then begins to describe the anarchy that exists when worldly wisdom prevails. He says, he says that there is disorder, meaning there's, it's unstable or restless. In chapter 1, verse 8, James called the double-minded person unstable. In 3.8, he, he described the, the tongue as restless. He uses the, the same word here in both instances. It's a, the word denotes a restless disorder that is created when jealousy and selfish ambition exists. So this is a direct result of following the world's wisdom. It's, it results in Anarchy. When there's jealousy and, and selfish ambition in the church, there's no stability. That's the point. When, that, when these things exist in the church, there's no stability. In saying this, I believe he's looking forward to James 4, verse 1, where, it's, where he says, "...what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that weighs war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder." You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, what do they need to ask for? Wisdom from above, right? That's what he said in, in chapter 1, verse 5. That, that they need the wisdom from above. You, he says in verse, verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Well, what motives are they asking for? They're asking to, 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 to further their own comfort. They're not asking for the wisdom it takes to, to navigate the trials of life, the difficulties of life. They're not asking for the wisdom that it takes to get along with others in the church. Listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Get this. This is very insightful. This is very insightful. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. You see, he knows that that as we come together, as we come together in in Christ, as as we come together in harmony, he knows that we're stronger that way. So what he's doing is he's doing his best to promote separation. And how does he do that? He uses jealousy and selfish ambition. His tools. In another quote he says this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. You see, the the church has gone the way of worldly wisdom. The church has taken the path of worldly wisdom and and not the path of of, of godly wisdom. Beloved, we have to fight then for Christian fellowship in the church. And we have to fight against the influence of Satan and the world in the church. We must fight to love one another. We must fight to eradicate all jealousy and selfish ambition. We must cultivate love and good deeds. That's what James is saying here. If you have wisdom from above, then it will be shown by your good behavior. We must desire the success of others, especially in ministry. Instead of being jealous jealous over it, instead of looking at people and envying them, we should be thankful for their success. James says, then, that that it brings also every evil thing into the church. That is, the jealousy and selfish ambition. James describes a, a litany of evil practices which occur when worldly wisdom is followed. Uh, the, the word translated evil can be used specifically of a lawsuit, which reminds me of the litigious nature of our society. Everyone wants to sue everyone. Paul warned the Corinthians against the practice of bringing lawsuits against one another. In the church, though, what's happening, what he's describing, what James is describing is a natural downward spiral that occurs when a group of people are given over to worldly passions. Every evil thing comes to be. Paul exhorted the, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians twelve twenty. "...for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances." I'm afraid, he says in verse 21, "...that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you." And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Back in James 3, James communicates in his choice of words and phraseology the utter chaos that is created when we follow worldly wisdom. Paul, in Galatians 5, communicates similar things. In Galatians 5.19, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions. And he goes on. He says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Paul and James both are communicating the death spiral that, that is so easy to start. It's a slippery slope. It's very easy to slip into the world's way of thinking. It's very easy to start following the wisdom of the world. All we have to do is be plugged into the culture and start behaving like the culture. Do you get that? If we start behaving like the culture, that's when we start that's when we get on that slippery slope. I've seen men and women ruin their lives by, by buying into worldly wisdom. The worldly wisdom that's propagated by the likes of Dr. Phil and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and, and even, even in the Christian community we see Joel Osteen and, and other charlatans. They, 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 these people buy into these, uh, un, these people who, who propagate this ungodly wisdom. I was reading a sermon by John MacArthur from the 80s and he said that Phil Donahue was vile. You know, I, I was thinking, he seems fa- tame compared to what we see today. Right? It's just, it, it's tame. He's tame compared to what, what's out there today. These things have a profound influence on us. Because worldly wisdom comes naturally. feels right, doesn't it? What, what they have to say, they're, they're saying things that, that make us feel good. Because it feels good to the flesh. But beloved, we must, we must flee these things, right? The world wants us to feel sorry for ourselves. The, the world wants us to look out for number one. The world tells us to sue others when we've been done wrong. But that is wisdom from below. The world tells us to leave the church when we've been wronged. It tells us to find another church and, or to worship from our own living room. Worldly wisdom uh, it leads to, to anarchy in our church churches, and it leads to anarchy in our lives. Because it, it keeps us from being settled, right? There's no foundation. And as we've seen, it leads to anarchy in our nation, right? Because there's no foundation. There's no root. Worldly wisdom then will destroy you it will destroy your family, and it will destroy the church. That's how serious it is. Worldly wisdom, if you follow that path, it will destroy you, and it will destroy your family and destroy the church. Therefore, we must seek after godly wisdom. If we're going to thrive... In this world, we must seek after godly wisdom, which, according to James, cultivates accord or peace. That's verses 17 and 18. James states in verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. See, now what's happening is is James is drawing attention to the result of godly wisdom. He wants his reader to understand the utter contrast between wisdom from below and, from wi- and wisdom from above. Now it's interesting to note that you can't see this in, in your English version but this sentence that, he's, that he writes here actually rhymes and is alliterated, in, in the, alliterated meaning that most of the words start with the same Greek letter. He's showing harmony in how he structures the sentence. And and when you look at it in the Greek, what you find is is that that it's it's contrasted between the sentence that he describes what's going on in the church with with earthly wisdom versus what's going on in the church with godly wisdom. And you see there's chaos in the sentence before, and there's harmony in the sentence after. And so when he describes the the godly wisdom, he's showing, even in the structure of his sentence, he's showing this harmony that, that he's speaking of. It conveys that disharmony result that results from earthly wisdom. It conveys that, that there's a there's a there's a there's a, a vast difference between the two. That is, James says that godly wisdom then is first pure, it's without moral defect or blemish, and godly wisdom comes down from the Father of Lights, whom that with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's then peaceable. This, this particular word is used in Hebrews twelve eleven, where where the writer of Hebrews says, "All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Very similar context. In this context James is saying that suffer or the writer of Hebrews is saying that suffering in and of itself is not joyful but sorrowful but that the result of the godly suffering always yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see godly wisdom as we as we go through trials as we go through difficulty godly wisdom always yields peace. It's a settled commitment to follow Christ through all sorts of difficulties. It's hard to describe with words, but it's it's obvious when we witness it in, a, in the believer's life. Just a few months ago, a dear brother and sister in Christ, uh, Lance and Beth Quinn, found out that she has advanced cancer. I've been we've been following it on Facebook, and I, just to describe them, they are parents of eight children, I think, and, and they have an ever increasing number of grand, great uh, grandchildren. That is. It's interesting, he's a pastor of a church from Arkansas, who's now living in California. But what I want to say, say about it is that she has, she has much to live for, right? Because she has just an amazing family, an amazing husband. I mean, she has so much to live for, yet she faces this battle with cancer with amazing courage, I've derived great joy in watching their whole family face this cancer in a way that only a settled commitment to Christ allows. You see they truly have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's what that's what James is saying when we follow godly wisdom no matter what happens in our life that we can have truly have peace in our lives. James says then it's gentle this this First, purer than peaceable, than gentle. It's yielding. It's kind. It's courteous. It's tolerant. Uh, it's an, an attitude. It's an attitude which doesn't insist on every right of the letter of law. It can be used of someone who doesn't have to have his own way. He exhibits a. They exhibit a gentleness, especially in regard to secondary matters. You know, the world might see this as weakness, but that's not how God sees it. James goes on to say it's reasonable. This describes a person who is open to reason. They they are opposite of the obstinate person who insists on having their own way. According to Douglas Moo, he says this, The believer who is characterized by these three traits... Peace-loving, considerate, submissive is the exact opposite of the envious, selfish, ambitious person who is driven by demonic wisdom. Let me say that again. The believer who is characterized by these three traits, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, is the exact opposite of the envious, selfish, and ambitious person who is driven by demonic wisdom. James goes on to say it's full of mercy and good fruits. This is a the, this is a practical mercy or concern that bears good fruit. It's a this this mercy is a key indicator of a godly person. This again brings to mind those who uh, chose to turn away their brethren. Remember, we talked about that. Go be warmed and be filled. And <coughs> it should be contrasted if you think about we, we learned about Rahab and what she did it should be contrasted with her good works and good fruit she was willing to sacrifice everything showing mercy to the spies acts of mercy then are those fruits that genuine, wis- genuine wisdom must produce if you have genuine wisdom you will show acts of mercy that's the point goes on to say it's unwavering, without hypocrisy. This can, be, this, this can mean not to be judgmental or divisive or even impartial. This person is, is pure and absolutely sincere in his, uh, his opinions and actions. They're without hypocrisy. There's a straightforward honesty about them. They don't pretend to play act. They don't pre- play act, that is, to, to influence people. They act the same toward all people. Paul exhorted the, the Romans in Romans 12, be of the same mind toward one another. You see, these people lead a, a simple and honest life before God and men. They love the brethren in simplicity, never expecting anything in return. There, then, the, According to this entire list then, that we've seen, the person characterized by wi- wisdom from above will be stable trustworthy, transparent. these are the kind of people who consistently display virtues of godly wisdom They can be they can be counted on to re- relied upon that is to to supply godly counsel. They love people because of they, they love people in general but they especially love those of the household of faith. The Apostle Peter, says this, exhorts the brethren this in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have been in the obedience to the truth, purified your... Let me say that again. Since you have in the obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently loving one another from the heart. Paul says this in Romans 12.9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Again, this list brings to mind the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, there's the similarity here. But it should be noted that that Paul speaks clearly of the fruits of the Spirit, with whom we have if we are saved. James seems to be following the Old Testament attributing these qualities to the presence and power of wisdom while Paul attributes these qualities to the Spirit. Now we can't equate the two, but we can say this. That Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So therefore, the only way we can attain wisdom from above is that if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. See the connection? You see, unbelievers can't have God's wisdom. That's the point. We can't truly give counsel to the unbeliever with the Bible because they do not understand godly wisdom. That's the reason why we, when we counsel people, if they don't know the Lord, we have to start with the gospel. We have to start with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't have a fear for the Lord, therefore they don't understand true and godly wisdom. James goes on to say in chapter three, verse 18, "And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." James says that the fruit of godly wisdom is righteousness, which leads to peace amongst the brethren. In James 1:20, we, we define righteousness as the conduct which, as conduct, that conduct, that is, which is pleasing to God. And that's the fruit here, this fruit of righteousness. This fruit of righteousness then is all the virtues that James mentioned in verse seventeen, which is exactly the opposite of every evil practice that he set, that he shows us or says or brings up in verse sixteen. They're, they're they're exactly opposite. This this that this righteousness, the fruit of the righteousness, is these virtues that that we that come from from. Doing righteous, uh, living righteously before the Lord. Let me say it this way. When we cultivate a life of godly wisdom, we reap the benefits and peace and harmony in our own lives. And then, and then this can have or does have great influence on the brethren. I'm amazed when we see churches, or when I see churches, in turmoil... I'm amazed, because the simple answer is to trust God and ask for his wisdom to live with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the simple answer. His answer then is not to give us a life of ease, but to give us hardship which causes us to seek after him. Even in the church, God sends turmoil, which causes us to seek after him. But get this. When we seek after him and we seek after his wisdom, he eagerly wants to give us that wisdom. And we seek to live according to his wisdom. We see the fruit of righteousness in our own lives. And through this he gives us great peace. And he brings through that, through the, the righteous living of, of those who love him, who are living according to his wisdom... He brings that to them, and there's a harmony, there's a peace in their own lives, which affects the whole church. So, if there's turmoil in the church, how do we answer that? By living righteously before the Lord, by seeking after His wisdom that He might might guide us. According to Matthew Henry, He says this Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. Do we live that way? Do you live that way? Do you live in such a way that you would, you would uh, give a- anything for peace except obviously the truth? can't give the truth up, right? So many issues would be solved in the midst of our families and our churches if we would only seek to live a life of prayer seeking after God's wisdom. if we would only seek to be peacemakers instead of those who sow discord. We must have the same attitude as as John Eliot. Listen to this. He once met an assembly of, of ministers who presented him with a bundle of papers containing the particulars of a contention between some individuals. Here's what he did. He threw the papers in the fire saying, brethren, wonder not what I have done I did it on my knees this morning before I came among you. you he threw it, threw it in the fire. We must be a people who are on our knees praying for one another, pursuing righteousness before God and men. And this righteousness cannot be produced and cannot be sustained in the context of human anger, right? That's, that's chapter 1, verse 20. It does not produce... Does not is, it cannot be sustained? Cannot be produced? Cannot be sustained in the context of humor, human anger, but it only grows and flourishes in an atmosphere of peace. And those who create such an atmosphere are sh- assured by our Lord of their reward. It says in Matthew five nine, "Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what sons of God." We've seen two wildly divergent outcomes of worldly and heavenly wisdom. Jesus proclaimed in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beloved in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Eve. She had a choice. She could believe God. She could believe the word of God when he warned her not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he warned her that in the day that she ate from it that she would surely die. Actually, he warned warned, uh, Adam that directly. She she heard it from Adam. Or she could believe the serpent when he told her that she she surely wouldn't die. You see, Adam and Eve had two distinct paths to walk. And they chose the broad path, plunging the entire human race into sin and death. Beloved, even today, we have those two paths. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. This gate is small and this way is narrow, and it lead, but it leads to life. And there are few who find it. You see, our discussion about wisdom really starts at the cross. You see, the scriptures say in Proverbs chapter 9, among other places, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus says that broad is the way. The way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. You see, beloved, sin looks good to us. The world is enticing, the church can be boring. It's not enticing from a worldly perspective. You know, all we talk about, it seems, is sin and death. But remember, though, remember this, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. The question is, do you fear that destruction? Do you fear God's eternal wrath? You see, the the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins may look like foolishness to you now. It may you may look like foolishness. the, that the gospel message uh, that Jesus died and, and for our sins that Jesus, the God went to the cross, may seem foolish, but I assure you it's the power of God. Paul ties all this together in First Corinthians one, verse eighteen. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The the world through its wisdom cannot know God. Yet God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He goes on in verse 23. Beloved, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And to verse 26, he goes on to say, "...for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast..." Before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. Beloved, if you're on that wide path, I beg you to enter the narrow gate. You will find find grace and mercy there. If you're buying into the wisdom of this world, turn from it. If you don't, let me just warn you, if you don't, you will destroy your life. You will destroy your family and you will destroy the church. Or your church, that is. Not the church. Amen. (laughs) Thank you. Beloved, according to this passage, according to James, we must seek after the wisdom of God. And according to Paul, what we saw is the wisdom starts at the cross. It starts by believing God's word. It starts by understanding that there are two paths the path of earthly wisdom, the path of the wisdom from below, and the path of wisdom from above. The question is which way will you go? Which way? Which way? We follow Christ or we follow the world? That's the question. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. I I pray that This message was clear enough that it could be clearly rejected or clearly embraced. There are two paths there is the way of the world, the way of worldly wisdom, where man does what is right in his own eyes. And there's your way. It's represented by the the narrow path. Those who don't know you here this morning, Lord, I pray that, that they would look at their lives, that they would look afresh at their lives and they would see that they're not on that narrow path. That they're following headlong after worldly wisdom. After worldliness, after the things of this world. Lord, I pray that those who are here who know you would look at their lives afresh and see where they may be following after worldly wisdom and how they handle themselves, succumbing to selfish ambition and jealousy, which is creating anarchy in the church, if you will. I pray that they would seek after righteousness. That they would follow after godly wisdom. That they would seek wisdom from above. I pray for Grace Bible Church. That we would be a church that that loves you. That we would be a church that loves one another. That we would be a people who who follow hard after you, who uh, hold one another up in in righteousness. We would be a people who who are righteous before you, who sow peace. Father, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Very interesting there that, that those who don't sow peace are not identified as being sons of God. I do ask that we would be a, a body that pursues the peace of the peace of God, your peace, your wisdom. In Christ's name, Amen.